Father, we thank you for this time in which we can open up your revelation to man on how you chose to disclose yourself to us through those in which would be proclaimers for you, that we would have it from one generation to the next, that it would be something that we could study and be changed by it, that through your spirit it would energize what we learn and be able to put it into practice so that we will grow in you, that we would be energized in you, that we would be able to proclaim the message of the gospel to those around us. And so, Father, thank you on how you are going to be working this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, please open up to John chapter 15, for we come to a close on the last great I Am statement. Um, something to where I've always wanted to do and finally have, have gotten the opportunity to, uh, to preach it. But um, it just sort of fueled my hunger because I have not preached through the Gospel of John yet. But yet this was one of the, uh, the themes that we find in the Gospel of John that just thrilled my heart. Because when we study the Gospels, it's just purely Christ. And we get to see Christ living out the calling that God has called him to do, which ended up with him dying upon the cross. So Christ is the central figure throughout the Bible, but we get to see his life be made display in the Gospels. Steve Lawson has said this concerning Christ that I just wanted to pass on to you. He said, there is no more compelling feature to follow than the Lord Jesus Christ. To follow him is life's greatest adventure. To know him is life's greatest privilege. To worship him is life's greatest pleasure. To serve him is life's greatest investment. And to obey him is life's greatest duty. The Christian life is Christ and is that simple. Christ is the sum and the substance of the Christian life. That is what it means to be a Christian. And so how true that is, because when you study the Gospel of John, you quickly find out that, it, that John wrote his Gospel so that people would read it and believe. His theme of the book is the Son of God, that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. And so he takes seven of the miracles that Christ had done and he builds his argument around them. And included in that are seven great I am statements. Because he makes these statements in which identifies himself with God and when he does spread like wildfire throughout the region. The first five of the seven I am statements, he had a hostile audience to where the religious leaders were there and they just hated everything that he said. The last two, the last one was found in John chapter 14 where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, was in the presence of his disciples. And then in chapter 15, he gives us the last I am statement. Beginning in John chapter 6 where he says, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. He goes on to say at the beginning of John chapter 10, I am the door of the sheep. And then gets into, I am the good shepherd. In John chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Then he goes on in John chapter 14, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And now here at the beginning of John chapter 15, and he repeats it again in John, uh, in verse 5, that I am the true vine. These are all metaphors in which pictures who Jesus is and what he has done for his people. They're powerful statements. They're life-changing statements. They're convicting statements for those who do not believe. They are statements to where, as a believer, we can uh, hold on to those truths and in difficult times be able to endure hardship, endure persecution. They're statements in which, for the believer, thrills our hearts because it shows us the completeness and fullness of our relationship in Christ. And this is the seventh one that we find in chapter 15 of John. So let me begin by reading um, the first eight verses for you to put everything within its context. Look at verse 1 of chapter 15. We find this. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So either you can, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burnt. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. That is such a great passage. And there's three aspects that you need to further know about the context in which he makes these great statements. The first of all you just need to know is that the growing of grapes is well known within Israel. And so they grew wine and they grew a lot of grapes. And so this is a very appropriate image that our Lord is using. And as soon as he uses it, they all knew the meanings that he was trying to convey. For Israel was a farming culture at this time. If you were to travel around at that time and even now, you would see fields of, of grapevines throughout the entire country. They would make... Um, uh, tresses on the side of the mountains where they would dig out the mountains and then make like little steps in which they would grow their vines. Each vine plant was about six feet apart, so they were social distance. And the uh, vine dresser would not allow each vine to grow fruit during its first three years. 
And so as the plant began to get established and grow, it would be focused on making a strong plant so when it did produce fruit, that it would produce great fruit. And so then the vine dresser would fertilize it, it would water it, and then he would come around and prune the branches so each branch of the vine would not get too long and his focus would be to produce the most effective branch. The branch would not be allowed to um, hang on the soil, but to maximize um, air circulation in sunshine. So everything that was done to, uh, to the vine was done to make the vine strong. And then on the third year, it was allowed to produce fruit. And each year, as it um, produced fruit, um, the branches would be pruned so that the following year, it would produce even more fruit, more grapes. And so tender care was taken on the plant. As with many other plants, it would try to, the vine would try to produce sucker branches, just little um, uh, branches that would come up underground from the root system, and um, it would take away vitality from the plant. And so its focus was on that center vine. And so all the plant's focus was to produce more fruit. And the vine dresser did everything that he could so that one vine were, was to produce the most fruit that it could. And so that's the first aspect. The second aspect that you need to know is, as our Lord tells his statement, we really don't know much about the background as some of the other I am statements. Because it's just a statement that is just made. But what we do know about the statement, that beginning from chapter 13 on, he is with his disciples in the upper room. And then at the end of chapter 14, he says, let us get up and go from here. So he's going to be going on his way to, to the garden, to where he's going to be arrested. But previous to that, he, um, he stops and prays twice. And so he, they're either on their way to, to the garden, and so they're walking along, and he makes his statement. Or if he was Italian, it takes you a half an hour to sort of say your goodbyes and, um, and to sort of actually leave the building, because you're just trying to corral everybody and to get them out. And so we actually don't know the exact setting, but he is with the 11 because Judas leaves by chapter 15 and he's only with his true disciples. And that's going to be key to understand this one section because Judas is gone to betray him. And as chapter 15 opens, we have that great I am statement um, that it is made. And so some commentators uh, think that, um, that this may not be all that important, but it's strikingly uh, important. The third thing that you really need to know about the context is that the symbol of a vine was very well known in Israel in that day. So much so that it was a national symbol, which actually goes back to the Old Testament. God describes his relationship with Israel as a vine. 
You don't have to turn here, but let me just give you some passages for you to write down that sort of fleshes this aspect out. That God's relationship with Israel is as a uh, vine dresser tends to the vine. He's the vine dresser and Israel is, is the vine. In Jeremiah chapter 21, God's message to his people is this. Uh, Jeremiah 2, verse 21, I have planted you as a choice vine. In Ezekiel 19, and verse 10, God calls Israel a luxuriant vine. In Psalm 80, God is, uh, God's deliverance from Egypt is as a vine that was transplanted into a fertile land. For the psalmist writes this in Psalm 80, and verse 8, You removed a vine from Egypt... And drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took root, and it filled the land. And then during the 400 silent years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, during that Maccabean period, the vine was so much equated with Israel that it was on its national coin. So that if you had coins, you would see a picture of the vine, and it represented Israel. And so this aspect, this imagery, symbolizes Israel. But I want you to turn, if, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 5. Keep, keep your finger there. Go, go to Isaiah chapter 5 for a moment. And so not only is it a picture of, of Israel, it's also a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness to the vine dresser. And I want you to see this because our Lord is going to bring this imagery in this one section in John chapter 15. And so there are many places that we can turn to, but Isaiah chapter 5 is, uh, is very clear, beginning at verse 1. And so um, it's the beginning of Isaiah's ministry to where he's a prophet um, telling Israel that judgment is going to be on the way. And he says this, let me sing now for my well for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. That's going to be Israel. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. So the vines were planted in a perfect spot that was fertile. He dug around it. He provided barriers. He removed its stones. That possibly means the removal of its enemies in the land so that it could grow. He planted it with the choicest vines. So it was the best plants. He built a tower in the middle of it. That's probably a reference to Jerusalem being high on the hill, being there um, to protect it against spiritual enemies. He also hewned out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes. And so the vineyard did everything. Fertile ground, best, best finds, protection. And so he expected it to get the best fruit. And look at the end of verse 2. There's a but. There's a contrast. He expected this, but this is what he got. But it produced only worthless ones. That word um, worthless there means um, unusable or literally wild grapes. Grapes that were sour. You couldn't use it for anything. The best land, the, uh, plenty of water, the best fertilizer, uh, the best vines, sour grapes. 
unusable grapes, worthless grapes is what the New, New American translators write. Look at verse 3, it goes on. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now tell, so now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, it will be consumed. I will break down its walls and it will be trampled upon. That's the removal of its protection. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the, the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. God's telling Israel, I gave you the best, and it was worthless. I've done everything that I could to produce the best fruit, and it produced nothing usable. I'm going to lay it to waste. I'm going to cause it to become overgrown and cause it to become utterly worthless. They were given so much privilege, were they not? They, they had God's law. They were a, re, a repository for God's truth. God worked in, 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 in their history, and they could look back and to say that we were chosen, the chosen people of God. Look at all the blessing. And so now Israel forfeited that place of uh, blessing because of unbelief. And so now the Messiah comes along in John chapter 15, and he is going to say, now I am the vine. I am the true one. No longer is man blessed by being in Israel, but he is blessed when he truly is in me. And so that's the picture that, that our Lord is drawing upon. So as soon as he makes it, his disciples knew exactly what they were saying. And then when they go out later on in, into the ministry and they say, this is what our Lord said. He said to us, I am the vine. They knew instantaneously what that meant. And so as the vine was faithless and unfruitful, Jesus is going to be the true vine and the true faithful. And all his branches will produce fruit for the glory of the Father. And so going back at the beginning of chapter 14, as this chapter begins to open up here, the disciples' heart were greatly troubled. All of the upper room discourse that we have is our Lord building comfort within their heart. He doesn't have a hostile audience anymore. He doesn't have to really draw lines in, in, in the sand directly to them. But he wants to encourage them. He wants to comfort them. And when he says that I am the true vine, it is a statement of comfort. Because trouble can still be within their heart because one of them 
one of the branches of the vine is a direct uh, picture of the fruitlessness that he is going to be describing here that is off and is going to be going to be burnt so much so that they never doubted Judas's faith because he looked so good. So they needed to be comfort. And when he makes this statement, it is an awesome statement. One in which for every believer that we can cling to in the most darkest of times because our Lord is there and he is the true vine. And so this is a metaphor. This is a word picture that you too, when you see plants, when you try to grow your tomato plants or your roses or whatever you try to grow, that you don't feel like that you have a black thumb, you know, that you can have somewhat of a green thumb without killing everything. Uh, my varmint in my yard get, gets my stuff, and so it really doesn't matter. But I try anyway. And so the parts of the metaphor is Jesus is the vine, the Father is the vine dresser, and in this metaphor, in this picture, there are two types of branches that are discussed. And we're going to be hitting, hitting these um, in a little bit. One, of the, uh, one type of branches, it produces fruit. Those are believers. And it is a picture that uh, for every believer, you will produce fruit. And when you produce fruit, God is going to prune you to produce more fruit. So keep that in mind. There's another type of branches that are, that are there in the vine and that are going to be cut off and not in the vine because they produce no fruit. So there's, there's this picture that is, that is going on. Believers, unbelievers. Not that those um, who don't produce fruit, they had faith. They were never one of them. And so you see pictures uh, throughout the, the, gospel, uh, the Gospels and the New Testament. There's the wheat and the tares, the good soil, the bad soil, the sheep and the goats. Now you have fruit producing branches and worthless branches that need to be cut off. These worthless branches think they're abiding in the vine. But the vine dresser is there and he does his thing and there's no growth. Because they don't, because they're not fully abiding in the vine. And so we're, we're going to be seeing that in a moment. And so there are seven things that we're going to be looking at this morning that our Lord is going to make clear to us that I just want to help underscore. So when you see, I am the vine, you will begin to remember these seven things. And as with the other uh, six I am statements, this one starts off with the same thing. When he makes this statement, this is a statement of our Lord's divinity, that he is God and God in the flesh. Though Jesus never formally said, I am God, everything that he did in, in the uh, implications of what he said pointed to him being God. Because when Mr. Jehovah Witness comes to your door, he will say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. He never said it. Well, you don't have to say it. You have to sort of see the things he said that only God could do. And then um, what he did were aspects that only God can do. So look at verse 1 when we get to see this I am statement. He says, I am the true vine. I am 
The Greek there is a very in, has a very interesting con, uh, structure, and it's uh, used very very rarely in Scripture. He says there there are two two Greek words. The first one is um, the word I in the English or ego, where we get our word ego. That means I am. And then the second Greek word we find is I me. That means I am. So literally, our Lord is saying, I am, I am the true vine. Why is that important? Well, it's important uh, for emphasis um, uh, meaning, but also it is the divine name of God. Going back to Exodus chapter 3, to where Moses is in front of the burning bush once again. To where God says to, to Moses, I am who I am. And in the Greek Septuagint, when they translated um, the Hebrew... During the intertestinal period, during that 400 silent years, the 70 scholars translated that ego aimi. Exodus, um, um, it's the same word that we find here that our Lord used. I am, I am the true vine. And so Jesus is declaring his divinity by the statement that he is making. It's profound. It means I is. It talks about the aseity of God. When you begin that, that, that when God is saying in, in Exodus 3, and what Jesus is saying is that I am all that there is. There is nothing else. That God is absolutely independent and self-sufficient of, of everything else. He just is. He always was. He always will be. He is complete within himself. He is lacking nothing. He never changes. He never diminishes. He's the eternal self-existent one. The one who always is, always was, always will be. And so that is who God is. And Jesus is, is declaring himself as being God in the statement that he is making. That he is fully God. He is clearly stating that he is co-equal with the Father. And so this theme we find throughout the Gospel of John. One of the places that I just want you to look at, go over to the right to chapter 18 for a moment. Where we get to see... The amazing result of him saying, saying this. In John chapter 18, I want you to look at verse 6 for a moment. Because Jesus is in the garden. The religious leaders and the Roman soldiers and the, the son of perdition's there. And Jesus asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazareth. But look at, look at verse 6. And so when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Picture this in your mind. Religious leaders could be as many as from 50 to 200. There were a lot of people there, religious leaders, and a lot of soldiers for just in case. Jesus Asked them, whom do you seek? Because he wanted them to read his name that was on the decree for to take him in and not do anything to his disciples. And so he says, whom do you seek? 
It says, Jesus of Nazareth, I am. The English um, uh, translators, uh, if you look at the word he, that's added in for, to help you understand it. But in the literal, it's ego I me again. I am, I am. And look what happened. They drew back and all the people that were there to arrest him, because it didn't, doesn't say some fell to the ground, they fell to the ground by the power of the statement that he made. Amazing. Soldiers just don't fall, fall down. They're centered with their weight. They're ready to go to fight somebody. They just don't fall to the ground. But in John's account, they fall to the ground with the very mention of I am. I want you to look at a, another passage. Go to the book of Revelation in the back. Revelation chapter 1. It's not plural. It's not revelations. Because you'll show your lack of Bible understanding very quickly to one to someone else if you're trying to prove something by saying go to revelations. But I digress. Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. When Mr. Jehovah Witness comes to the door, out of all the things that, uh, that I tell him, I focus on two things, who Jesus was and how does one um, get to be saved, and I don't care about anything else about, about what they say. But I, I could turn to this one passage. I say, okay, Mr. Mr. J.W., who is speaking in verse 8? And verse 8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Who's speaking? Well, it's right there, they'll say. It says, the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. So he'll smile. I, I, I got that right. All right. You're right. That, that is God. Go to Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter. So they're going from the first chapter to the last chapter. Go to chapter 22 for a moment. And I want you to tell me who is speaking there. All right. Go to verse 12. I want you to start there. All right, Mr. Mr. Jehovah's who's speaking? Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, beginning from the end. So he's, so he's going, oh, I don't know. I don't know who's speaking. But it says the same thing as what it says in chapter 1. All right? Well, to help you out, jump down to verse 20. Who's speaking there? Ah, he'll say. Well, John tells us. He who testifies to these things, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So I say, all right, who's coming quickly in, um, in, verse, in verse 12? Well, who's coming quickly in verse 20? Jesus. Well, who's, um, who's speaking? Well, the same one who's coming quickly. And so who's the Alpha and the Omega? Jesus, Jesus is God. And we see that in Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 20 because he is the one who is coming quickly. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning from the end. And so there are many other passages that we can go to to help solidify that Jesus is God. But before we leave, I want you to go back to John chapter 1, because we all heard of the Romans road when we shared the message of the gospel with, with someone. And the, the Romans road is one way in how to do that. But I want to show you six verses that are the God road. Or for those who want to amaze their friends, the Johannine road. John's road. Because 
theologians like to come up with big fancy words to show off that they're educated. The Johannine Road, if you would, or the God Road, and these six verses you can show Mr. Mormon, Mr. Jehovah Witness, to help solidify to them that Jesus is God. In John chapter 1, look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Mr. Jehovah, in his Bible, there's an indefinite article there. They would say, aha, wait a second, that says the Word was a God. No, in the, in the little Greek, there's no indefinite article. It just says the Word was God. The word was God, the word is God, and forever shall be God. And then in verse 14, it says the word became flesh. Look at verse, and so that's number one, the word is God. It's, it's a solid place to go, but he's not going to like it. But look at verse 18. The second place that we show them is, is verse 18 of chapter 1. Jesus is not only the word of God, the word is God, but Jesus is the only begotten God. Look what it says. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father. And he, which is Christ, has explained him, the Father. The English there, only begotten, is, is a hard phrase to understand, but it means unique. The only beloved. No one has seen God, but Jesus is the only unique God who is in the bosom of the Father. Look, uh, look what he says, that he is the true vine. The, uh, the stem of the vine and all of its root that is compared to Christ, it is the source of everything that we need to grow spiritually. And so once we uh, attach ourselves to him, there's nowhere else we need to go. You don't need a, spe a special religious ceremony. You don't need to become a, a better second level Christian by doing some kind of performance to climb some mountaintop or to live on top of a flagpole or whatever it may be. Each one of us are equal in Christ. Each one of us can have that same vibrancy in Christ because Christ is sufficient we don't need anything else but him and his word. And that's exciting because my flesh tells me, you're a terrible Christian. <laughs> you keep falling. You keep having thought. You're, what good are you? But no, our Lord is there. We all can have that same deep relationship if we get into the word and truly put our faith in Christ. Go to, go to chapter 1 in verse 14 for a moment. Just want, to, uh, just want to show you this. In John chapter 1 in verse 14, we have that beginning part where the word became flesh. Because in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. In verse 14, the Word became flesh, tabernacled or dwelt among us. We saw His glory, glory as, only, as the only begotten from the Father. Now look at that last part. We forget about the last part. This Word that became flesh was full of grace and truth. And he gives this grace and truth, this fullness, out liberally. And so it's, 
He gives us all truth. He gives us all grace. Grace means something that we receive that um, it's unmerited. And so all areas of our spiritual life in which we grow, which we receive from the Spirit, in which we receive spiritual fruit, they're all aspects of God's grace at work in your life. At salvation, we receive saving grace. But that grace doesn't stop there. Every aspect of your walk with Christ is a means in which he shows forth his grace. There's strengthening grace where he empowers us with his spirit so we can accomplish all that what he's called us to do. There's sanctifying grace that he helps us set our lives apart and conform to us. There's serving grace as we serve our, our, our life for Christ. It affects others around us with the one another's. And so look at verse 16 of, of chapter 1. Not just is he full of grace and truth, but in verse 16 it goes one step further. For of his fullness we have all, each one of us, everybody who names the name of Christ, we all received and grace upon grace. There's that overflowing aspect, not just a little bit of grace that's unmerited that God gives us, that we didn't do anything, but it's grace upon grace upon grace upon. He is there. Why? Because we are going to be abiding in the vine. We receive all our sustenance from the vine. It's a statement of his sufficiency that everything that we need in this life um, comes from him because with Christ we will never thirst with Christ we will never hunger with Christ from our innermost being will flow rivers of living water we have eternal life will never perish will never die we will always be satisfied in Christ those are the promises that we find throughout the gospel of John it's there that's what he makes available to those who abide in him not just that, you remember back in Psalm chapter 23, it begins by the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not what? Want. The shepherd's going to give it. He's the good shepherd. He will lie me besides on green pastures. He will lead me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness with his rod and staff. They comfort me. No, f uh, I... I fear no evil, for you are with me, for surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. Doesn't stop there. Paul talks in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 19. He says, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 10, in him you have been made complete. And I can go on and on with things, with the promises that our Lord has given to us. And it just reinforces to us that when our Lord makes this statement, it shows us his sufficiency because we are found abiding in him in the vine. That's why Paul can say in Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We can claim that. We can we can have our Lord work with that. But fourthly, it's a statement of not just his sufficiency, but it's a statement when he makes it of his exclusivity. 
his exclusivity. He says, I am the vine, the true vine. And then he repeats it. He's making claim that he is the one and only genuine, authentic, real. That's the original meaning for the word true. I am the genuine vine. I'm the authentic one. Everything else is not the real one. Our Lord is that vine. Every other vine is a false vine. And if one begins to abide in those things, they will produce no fruit and they are burned. It's exactly what John said in John chapter 6 where he likens himself to being the true bread. Like the manna that came out of heaven, I'm that true bread. I'm the authentic bread. And so all others who claim to be a real vine, in reality, they are not. We don't need any other vines. <laughs> He's the genuine one. You don't need anything else. I like how Steve Lawson summarizes this. He says, anything that people attach themselves to outside of Christ, that is any religion outside of Christ, any wisdom not flowing from Christ, any practice not in obedience to Christ, any religious ceremony without knowing Christ, any pursuit that does not lead to Christ, any pleasure that is not found in Christ, church attendance without knowing Christ, any tradition outside of Christ, any of these are not the real saving gospel. He is the true vine and he will not tolerate any other vine. And so our Lord is that genuine vine. Because that's why in Matthew chapter 7, our, many people will say, Lord, Lord, look, look what I've done for you. And our Lord's going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Why? They thought they were pleasing God, but they were not because they weren't in the vine. They weren't focused upon him. Fifthly, there's another aspect of this statement I want you to think about. It was also a statement of intimacy. When he makes this statement, it is a statement of great intimacy. Because if he is sufficient and he produces vitality and if he is God, it begins to show us that he wants to be intimate with the branches. Look what he says in verse 5. I am the vine, as he repeats it. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him. You're going to bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. And so if we're in Christ, guess what comes along with that? He's going to abide where? In us. Equally. He's not only sufficient, but he's going to um, put within our heart a vitality. It is a sign of his great intimacy. That he is high and lifted up and most supreme, but yet he chooses to be close and personal to his people. God is not only transcendent, he is high, but he also wants to be intimate. We can be close to the creator who made all things. Even a lowly sinner like I. And so he works within our hearts. He's enthroned within our soul. And we can have that intimate fellowship with him. 
And that is why the hymn writer writes these words. He says, loved with everlasting love, drawn by grace that love to know, spirit sent from Christ above, thou dost witness it is so. Oh, this full and precious peace from his presence all divine, in a love that cannot cease, I am his. And guess what? He is mine. That is that deep, everlasting love that we have. That is the privilege that we have because we abide in him. He provides, he energizes, he is close with his people. And so it shows us that we can rely on him. When times get tough, he is sufficient. He is always there. Look down in, in verse 11, so much so that as he begins to work through this passage that we don't have time to, he says, these things I have spoken to you, resulting in or so that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be made full. He works within us. He is there to comfort his disciples and us so that our joy may be full. But sixthly, it's a statement that he makes of evaluation. It's a statement of evaluation. Jump back up to verse 2 for a moment. This is that he gets into that two groups of people. Those who abide and, and bear fruit and those who do not. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, what does he do? He takes away. He cuts it off. He gets rid of it. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And so our Lord is the great pruner. On one side, we begin to see that the Lord wants to prune, to prune the life of a believer. So all those imperfections and all the things that we fall short, he's there, he's trying to cut out. Why? To produce more fruits. But also, on the other side, for those who think they're abiding in him, he is going to get rid of them. Like Judas, who was a part of them, and they thought that Judas was one of them, that he was one of, one of a true disciple. But he was only a professor. He was not a possessor. There's a difference. And the branches that do not bear fruit, they are the same thing. They're, they are those who profess to know Christ, but in reality, they do not possess Christ in their hearts. They're all doing it to gain favor for God or to put on a show to show others that they are religious, but in reality, they are not. Each one of you at one point were there. And the sad thing about it is there may be some here today who think they have a right relationship with God because they've done some kind of ceremonial service or they give money or through their church attendance. You go to every church in the United States and you'll find these branches that do not produce fruits, especially down south in the Bible Belt because they're getting people who think they're saved because they've been saved all, all their life and to show them they're not saved is one of the hardest things that a pastor can do. And so there are branches that produce no fruit. 
no spiritual fruit at all. And it is a result of the reality that they're not really possessors of Christ. They don't abide in Christ. So it's a very clear picture. The branches that produce fruit where you can point to. And there are branches that have no fruit. Well, what's fruit? Well, that's part of the seventh statement. The seventh aspect of this statement is that it is a statement of blessing. For those who are abiding in Christ, that their trust is in, in Christ, they will produce fruit. And fruit is any kind of spiritual growth at all. Any thoughts about God, any thoughts about uh, hymns coming in in your mind, uh, victory over sin, sharing your faith, um, seeing people get saved, the power of prayer, having your hearts filled with joy, encouraging someone else, whatever that is, that's all spiritual fruits. And that's the exciting part of the Christian life, that every single day we can have effect with not only ourselves, but our family, our friends, our acquaintances, um, whoever those people may be, we can have the opportunity to minister to them in some way and to produce some kind of spiritual fruit. So it's, it's a statement of blessing that God is at work using us as the conduit for those around us, whether or not it's growth within ourselves or those around us. And so that's the fruit. And God is going to be pruning to produce even more fruit. He wants to make us come fully complete in Christ so that when people look at our lives, that we look exactly like Jesus. And so it, it's, it's interesting because there are three kinds of fruit that's talked about in this passage. There's little fruit, there's more fruit, and then there's much fruit. And so that's one of the things. Where do you want to be? I want my life to put God's glory on display so much that I am amazed how he's using simple me to touch others around us. More fruit, much fruit. That's where I want to be. Lord, use me to produce much fruit. Well, guess what? God's going to prune you wherever you are if your faith is in him. It comes from salvation in verse 3. You've already been clean or pruned because of the word which I have spoken to you. You've already come to faith. You're already abiding in the vine. And so when God bears, much, uh, bears fruit, look at verse 8. The Father is glorified. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove that you to be my disciples. And so when you think and see this aspect, I am the true vine, for the believer, that's a great reminder and statement of our Lord. It tells us that we, we will never hunger, that we will never perish. When you look at all the, all the I am statements, no matter how hard times may be, these are reminders for us. We are complete in Christ. He is sufficient that we don't have to worry about the evil one. We're protected from him. He will provide everything that we, that we need. He will guide us where we need to go because he is the great shepherd. He's promised to raise us on the last day and give us an abundant life. 
He is there to energize us and give us vitality because he is the way, the truth, and the life. So when you begin to look at the I am statements, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. And so for the believer, that is a great statement. Those are great statements of comfort for us. But for those who don't know Christ as their Savior, they put on a good show, but you just know deep down inside that things are wrong. There's a struggle with sin that if you were to die today, you don't know where you go. You hope in where you, where you go might be heaven, but you don't have that assurance. Turn to Christ because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Father, there's so much more than what we could say and so much in this passage that there is far less time that we have. But what an amazing statement. Father, as we go out into the world, people think they abide in you. They, they think they're religious. But their hope and trust is in everything that is outside of you. It's in a saint. It's in a prayer to a saint. It's in the do's. I have to do this because God commands me. And they think they're pleasing you. And they think they're gaining merit, but they are not. Father, let them get the comfort to know that their sins can be completely forgiven. And they can know this very day that their salvation is secure because they see their helplessness, repent of their sin, and turn to you. But also, Father, for the believer, what amazing truths these are to give us hope and comfort to know that no matter how hard things get, you are there to comfort because you have made these seven great statements. So thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.